Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We just wanted to let you know that this recording was done with a different software, so it's going to sound a little bit different than our normal sound quality. And I would love for you to hang in there with us as we have an amazing guest and interview coming on. In this episode, we will be interviewing Brittany Carbone. Brittany Carbone is a Santa Monica-based fitness professional, a certified personal trainer. She is a UCLA graduate and has maintained 65-pound weight loss. She is a person in long-term recovery. She has a program called Lean Lifestyle Method, which starts in a couple weeks, and we are going to hear about her amazing journey and courage to change. All right, episode four, let's do this. Brittany, I'm so excited to have you on The Courage to Change. How are you doing? I'm good. It's so awesome to be here and it's so good to see your beautiful face. Oh, likewise. Thanks for coming. All of our listeners don't know how amazing you are, but I really, really want them to hear about this amazing journey that you've had with your recovery. And it's nothing short of miraculous. And the best part, I think, of your story is that your recovery began deep in your sobriety, that you were already sober for many years before you actually made an even bigger change. So I'm, re- I'm just really excited for everybody here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and what your life was like early on? Yeah, of course. And thank you for your kind words. Let's see, I was born in August <laughs> of 1986. <laughs> no, I grew up in San Clemente, and in San Clemente, California. It's an Orange County kid. Grew up in a totally surfer slash, I would say kind of money kind of money surfer area. Our street was 11 houses. We had a a big white gate on the street. And my interesting part about that is that my perception was clearly off because when I was a kid, I thought I grew up in the hood. Like I thought I had it really hard back then. Um, And it's so interesting to look back and like, wow, my perception was really off from day one. (laughs) I really didn't I didn't have any understanding of what real life was. And so yeah, I grew up in St. Clemente. I went to St. Clemente High School. I grew up playing soccer, playing, um, you know, surfing, snowboarding, active kid. Grew up, I had a, a three sisters, three older sisters, one full sister, two half sisters. Um, my parents got divorced when I was really young. And I had a, my dad who lived in Canyon Lake. So we had summers on the lake and school year at the beach. And it was just, you know, um, by all intents and purposes, a really good upbringing. Yeah. And uh, so what, I mean, I kind of see where you come, like, it's so easy to feel like you live in the hood when you live in Orange County, because (laughs) if you compare, like, depending on what you're comparing it to, like, oh yeah, this does feel like the hood. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see that. What was the first time that you ever interacted with your drug of choice or maybe not your drug of choice, any substance? Oh, well, I mean, any substance. Are we going to count sugar as a substance there? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what am I saying? Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, well, <laughs> um, I mean, I was from a very young age, from a very, very young age. I would say like my earliest childhood memories are like five of just going and we had a walk-in pantry going into the walk-in pantry with a spoon, 
sitting on the floor and just eating sugar straight out of the bowl. My, my mom would put it in this plastic container and I would just sit there spoon after spoon eating sugar on the floor. And my first interaction was that. <laughs> that's amazing. That's that's like straight to the hard stuff. Oh yeah, I would have snorted it if I knew how. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Is this it's your purity? So okay, so you're doing this, and what do you remember? Any of the stuff you were thinking at the time, other than like yay sugar? Yeah, I think that I really liked the taste, but what I think I really, and if I look back at it, I don't think, you know, five-year-old Brittany was like, oh my God, I'm going to go into the cupboard and numb out. (laughs) But when I look at it, I think that I was, that's what I was essentially doing is, you know, if if there was an argument in the house or if, um, you know, something was upset or dad was upset or if, uh, you know, I knew there was kind of turmoil going on, then I would run to the cupboard and sit on the floor. (laughs) And it was just like what I did, you know? Yeah. Just how I kind of dealt with anxiety. Right, right. So it was it was a coping it was a f- the first coping skill. First coping skill for sure. Yeah. And what did uh what came after that? Lots, I mean sugar was a huge part of my early childhood. I mean through my whole still. Uh, it was part of my life still. But after that the first like n- the next new substance I would say was alcohol for sure. And of course alcohol um, metabolizes into sugar. Yeah, alcohol. Well, let me let me rephrase that. Actually, I moved from sugar on the floor to getting bubblegum cigarettes from the ice cream man, and then we would light them and try to smoke them. Bubblegum. Oh, bubblegum cigarettes that like, oh, I, I was like, they have bubblegum cigarettes? Oh my God. Yeah, you're like, um, wait a second. Yeah, I was like, wait um, a second. I feel like I missed something very important. Okay, no, you tried to smoke actual bubblegum. Yeah, we tried to smoke actual bubblegum, but we would do that a lot. Like we would get packs of them and then we would like, we would literally light them and try to smoke them. How'd that go? So, I mean, it turned out great. <laughs> uh, I don't think it re- went really well. I think we were honestly just, uh, what we were doing was burning paper <laughs> and inhaling it. So yeah. So, I mean, it's just funny. I mean, it's just interesting to like, to notice that. But then the next thing was drinking. So the first time I drank was summer before eighth grade. And I had met some girls in school and they had met some guys that were in high school and they said, Hey, you want to go to the beach with us? We're going to go to the beach. And we're going to go to this guy's house. And he had a little, they called it the cave. Basically the underneath of his house was dug out. And these were girls that I really wanted to be cool with. These were girls that I thought were, you know, I never really fit in at that time. It was like, I'm not bad enough to be a bad kid but I wasn't good enough to be a good kid. So it's kind of in this gray area and wanted to be in both groups, but just didn't really know how. And they were going to the cave. They were going under there. And I mean, I have like the very, I think the very stereotypical alcohol first experience. We're sitting in a circle and they're passing around the bottle and the bottle gets to me. And I look around and I see them all looking at me. And it's like this moment of choice. And I drink the alcohol and then boom, I really do remember that feeling of, oh, hello, this is it. Mm. This is game on. Like, yeah. Easy. We're good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was Goldschlager. Oh, God. And it tastes like cinnamon Tic Tacs to me. And so it was just, and then it kept going around and around and around. And yeah, that was the first time I drank. And I did, I felt immediate relief from that anxiety, that um, outsiderness I felt. Right. You, you immediately belonged. Oh yeah. It's interesting to me how so often our first alcohol is just 
like the worst kind of alcohol. You know, like no one ever starts with like good champagne. Okay, well, that's not true. Maybe some yeah. people do, but I don't know them. Whoever I don't know them either. Like really good alcohol. It's like some wine cooler and gold schlager. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So life gets really good in the cave. You're like, oh, I've arrived. Yeah. I'm under a house. And take me from there. That day, uh, ended up like making out with one of the high school guys. And then my sister came to pick me up to take me to soccer practice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is I mean, day drinking. Oh, this is day drinking. This okay. is not night drinking. We started off day drinking. <laughs> and I go to soccer practice. And I remember my sister picks me up and she's like, I'm sure she had already drinking at this time in her life. She's, she's four years older than me. So she probably knew I was drunk. And I remember being like, I can't go to soccer practice. And she's like, you have to go to soccer practice. Mom told me to pick you up and take you to soccer practice. And I remember getting there, soccer practice. And I remember we were doing a warm-up drill and I kept missing the ball, <laughs> like going to kick it and just falling and laughing. And I mean, it was, fun. I knew I shouldn't have been drunk, but I also was having a good time. And I remember my coach like dismissed me from practice and made me just run the entire practice. So I was just running and running. And I don't think I had a consequence for that. I don't think anyone ever found out that I was drinking. Did the coach but know? I think the coach, I mean, I know the coach knew, but okay. he never, I didn't get in trouble by anyone. So he must not have like told my parents or anything. But yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. What happened from there? How did it progress? Yeah. So it kind of was like that, you know, like I would always kind of drink at the wrong time. It was before soccer practice or before, you know, a dance or before it, but I never really got in trouble. Like I never got caught or I would um, do a really good job at, you know, staying at someone's house the, that night. And we got really creative. Sorry, mom, if you're listening, um, we got really creative. We had this one mom or this one guy's grandma who would call our parents for us. And she would say, yeah, she's going to stay over and would like talk to them, even though like we were all going to go out partying. And it wasn't every weekend. It was like maybe once a month. And, you know, it was always, it was kind of rinse and repeat. It was drink, get too drunk, throw up, piss someone off, probably threw up in someone's car, make out with someone, hate myself, and then be excited to do it again. Yep. And it was just kind of, you know, but it was never, uh, I didn't wake up and drink in the morning type of thing. But when I was 15, I did uh, have my first hospital visit. And that was a night where I drank 99 bananas. Oh my I can God. finally eat bananas now after like 10 years of being sober. <laughs> but, um, but 99 bananas, I drank like an entire bottle trying to be cool. Ended up in the hospital throwing up blood. I don't remember any of it. The cops asked my sister if I spoke a different language. And oh they my. <laughs> God. So like, does she speak Arabic or like, (laughs) because no one knows. And all I recall from that entire night is drinking the bottle on a playground on a swing. And then I remember looking up with like bright lights over my face and telling them my, my sister's number but like saying it wrong because hers and my mom's number were, were one number off. And I'd be like, no, 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 don't call that number. Call this other number. And then, you know. So how, you were 15. Oh my gosh. So you end up at the hospital. And do you remember the hospital at all? Or did you come to when you got home? No, I came to when I got home. And 
my mom luckily had just started dating this guy and they, I guess they had, they were out of town. They'd come back the next day. And luckily my mom found out when the guy was there. So she kept her cool because I don't know why it's like he, luckily he ended up being basically my stepdad for 11 years after that. (laughs) But he, um, but luckily he was there. He was, I remember being like, thank God this guy is here. (laughs) He's the only reason I'm not literally dead. (laughs) And so I got grounded for a couple of weeks. I was very upset about that. And yeah, that was kind of just that, you know, I don't know how long after that I drank again. It just kind of was, it was just like that all throughout high school and then into college, same thing, blackout drinking. I had a couple more hospital stays. I found out something that I really like to like drink in excess. <laughs> so when I do drink, it's a nightmare. And so it was like, of course, I wouldn't drink for at least a bit of time in between because it was such a nightmare. I would like clean it up, you know, have to like pick up the pieces. So, okay. So this is one of those things that I, I hear a lot, which is like, well, I don't drink every day or I haven't had a drink in three weeks or, you know, just a lot of these stereotypes that you have to drink a certain way in order to have a problem. And yeah. I think what's really interesting is that yours is a perfect example of, of a situation where it's like binge drinking in its truest form. Yeah. And I think that that was a big thing that was confusing to my family, especially when I got sober, which I know we'll get to, but they were very confused because they, I, I didn't drink every day. So they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's not about how often you drink. It's the way you drink and what happens. So and it's I like, feel. I have a sip of alcohol. It's game over. Like I'm not a moderate drinker. I never had the intention of being a moderate drinker. I mean, there were times where I would go out with the intention of having a glass of wine, but it never, it never happened. I mean, maybe one Tuesday in like 92, <laughs> you know, like I maybe had one drink, but for the most part it was disaster. So when did you realize that your drinking was not like other people's drinking? Was there ever a time in this rinse and repeat that other people weren't doing what you were doing? Oh yeah. I think college was where I really got high school. I think a lot of people are are drinking and we're really crazy because we're, we're out of the house and we're finally free of our parents and blah, blah, blah. And in high school, like I think a lot of people are over drinking, like, I mean, drinking too much college people are still I went to UCLA people were still drinking too much but I was the one that was not coming home at night I was the one who was losing like I would literally like leave my entire purse with like everything in it at the bar and they would hold it for me because they would know it was mine like it was just like I was the one that was a total nightmare and the thing that really distinguished it for me is that even if I didn't do anything quote-unquote wrong I had that feeling, which is described in the big book of like incomprehensible demoralization. Mm. And my friends didn't have that. So I would wake up feeling like I need to die. And they would wake up and be like, that was a crazy night. (laughs) Right. And I'm like, no, my soul has been ripped from my body and I can't like be on this earth anymore. (laughs) So it was just like such a depressive episode for me after drinking. And so not for them. Like it was just, I just never understood. And I just, I was like, no one understands what I feel. So it was really dark. With the hospital visits, what did you think about the fact that alcohol was landing you there? Did you, did that occur to you as maybe abnormal? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Abnormal. Yes. I think the funniest thing was when there was one time I went to the hospital and I was at UCLA and my mom came to pick me up and I was certain that I got drugged. I was like, I got drugged. Like that is what happened. And they were like, no, we did all the tests. I was like, no, there is no way because I had a glass of wine 
And I woke up in the hospital and they were adamant. No, we tested everything. You did not get drugged. So on the outtake form, it said, don't drink so much. Like suggestions, don't drink so much. <laughs> and I was like, so at that point, you know, it's like, I, it was so normalized. Yes, at UCLA, but then I also, I, this is a big part of my story, is that I worked in the action sports industry. So I was on tour with skate, motocross, BMX, surf. Like I was all over the country doing these action sports things. So if you weren't blacking out in that industry, you weren't doing it right. So I mean, at least with the people I rolled with, like we all blacked out right. all the time. So it was very normal in that setting. At UCLA, it was a little bit not normal or less normal at least. So you found your people. Yeah, I found my people and I loved it. And they were so fun. And it was like, luckily, a bunch of guys who like took care of me, honestly, like they would pick me up, drag me, put me in bed. Right. And luckily, they were good people. Yeah. So so what happened from there? When did you start to feel that feeling of can't live with it, can't live without it? When I... Well, I started really seeing it in in college, I really wanted, you know, I always had this yearning to be like a spiritual person. So I would start to study Buddhism. I would take like yoga classes and I would start to really like seek something. And then I'd get drawn back into the drink. I'd train for a marathon, get drawn back into the drink. I'd start working out and like eating healthy. And I was always on these like health kick benders where I'm like, I'm not going to drink. I had my drunk calendar and I would, I would mark the days I blacked out and what I ate that day because I thought for sure it was because I had tacos instead of a salad (laughs) or it was because I just didn't understand or it didn't believe that it was the drinking. So I think I really started to understand it was a problem when I graduated from college and it just didn't stop because everyone kept saying too, like, oh, you'll, you'll outgrow it. It will stop everyone. It's just what you do in college. And like, apparently it's what you do out of college as well. (laughs) So I was 22 when I got sober. So I graduated college. I got sober the winter after that. So what? why'd you get sober? What brought you there? So I had uh, another night and I really hurt somebody I was dating. I like made out with some other guy in front of this other guy I was dating. And I, um, like, and I was in a complete blackout. I don't remember any of it. And so I swore off drinking. Like I'm not drinking anymore. I'm so sorry. Like I just, cause it's like, when I was sober, I wasn't that type of person. When I was drinking, I literally had no, and, and I don't think that people that have not blacked out understand that when you're blacked out, you are really blacked out. It's not like a, oh, I'm I blacked out. I don't, I don't really remember what happened. It's like, I li- literally have absolutely, it's like I was not even in my body functioning. What's crazy about that, like, is that you actually, it's also not that you're necessarily like passed out either. You're no. fully acting out you're fully functioning you know for me driving a car whatever it is like it's it's amnesia it's not passed out well that's the scary part too because my friends would say you i would have thought you were sober last night and i would have no recollection nothing especially towards the end it was almost every time i would black out 99.9% of the time i blacked out when i drink and when i quit drinking for that those 30 days i had so cuz i had hurt that person i felt so bad. So I quit drinking. And then of course I went on a snowboard tour and I was like, well, I think I'm fine. You know, some people gave me some free drink tickets and I drank one last time. And that night blacked out after two drinks. And I remember having the first one, I'm in Breckenridge, Colorado. And I'm, you know, and then I have the second one altitude on top of everything, plus being an alcoholic. 
And I passed out in the snow in negative 17 degree weather. Oh my God. And um, luckily some random people found me. I don't know how long I was out there and they took me home with them. And it was just like, I woke up in the morning and again, no idea. Same thing. It wasn't any different, but I walked out from this bedroom having no idea where I was, having nothing with me. And there was a girl on the couch and I'm just crying. And she was like, don't worry, sweetie. I wake up in random houses all the time. (laughs) And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, this isn't fun. I don't know what happened last night. I like checked myself, like checked in with myself. I'm like, I don't think anything like quote unquote bad happened, but I don't know. And it was just a very scary moment. And then I had to get to work. And it was just like, so that, that day I started Googling blacking out. And I was like, there's got to be a reason. There's got to be like an EpiPen or like <laughs> something. Because I just, I guess, really didn't believe it was because of the alcohol. I thought I had an allergic reaction. Turns out I do, but a different type. I thought it was like a peanut allergy or like shellfish or, you know, I didn't think it was drinking too much or well, alcoholism. You, you break out in blackout. Yeah. People say they break out in handcuffs. Yeah, yep. exactly. I break out in blackout. Totally. A hundred percent. So illusion for me there anymore. (laughs) So so you started Googling blackout. (laughs) What'd you you find? Well, I found the alcoholic test. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I was like, and I remember I was sitting in my office and I was in there and I'm like, okay, so I took the test. I'm like, well, I didn't answer yes to all of them. And at the bottom, I think it said something like, if you answered yes to like two or three or more or whatever, then you might be an alcoholic. And I'd answered yes to like, I think there's 20 some seven or something. I, I know I'd answered all but like two, you know, said yes to all of them. And so then somehow, I mean, this is all for me, divine intervention. There was a link somewhere in there to a meeting group online. And I clicked it and there was like a chat room and they had AA meetings online. And so you could go in there and there would be like a speaker, but they didn't speak. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like a FaceTime call. It was a chat room. So you never saw anyone's face. And they would share their experience, strength, and hope. And then people would push asterisk to share. And I remember I would like throw up on these meetings, but I didn't know what that was. So I would just go off in the chat room, just like, this is how I feel, blah, blah, blah. And uh, yeah, I did that for 30 days. That's when the years of AIM come in handy. You remember? Yeah. Yeah, When you're like, if you grow up a 90s kid, then you had AIM and all the drama would take place on the instant messenger. And so you get so good at typing because you have got to get your opinion and the facts in there really fast. So I I think that the online typing meeting was probably a good place for you to vomit those emotions because you had the AIM, AIM background. It was so good for the Yes, 100%. That and also... I truly believe that if it had been a face-to-face meeting, I don't think I would have ever been on it. I don't think that I had... Because a lot of my stuff had to do with looking good and needing you to think that things are put together and be just falling apart, just falling apart. And so I don't think... I don't know that I would have gotten sober if I went to an AA meeting in the beginning. But a guy told me, this guy Ian from New York, he was like, he was a gambler. He was a... He wasn't an alcoholic, he was a gambler. He's now... I mean, obviously, I'm not going to say his last name, but this guy Ian is a lawyer in New York. Or uh, yeah, he's a lawyer in New York and he freaking Eskimoed me, took me into a side chat room and mm-hmm. was like, yo, you have a real issue. <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> he's like, I really, I really think you need to like go to a real meeting. 
<laughs> you, you got, you, it's so, I've totally had that where it's like, you're in a group of people who are struggling and then someone's like, no, you're really struggling. Like you, you like, wait a minute. I thought this was a safe place. Yeah. No, 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 no. Ian was like, you need help. Like you really need help. Thank God for him. We still talk from time to time now. And, um, he like probably single-handedly saved my life. That's amazing. And cause, because like, again, although I like, it sounds, you know, from what I said that my alcoholism was like, yeah, I went to the hospital a couple of times, but like, let's be honest. There was, there were times where I woke up and this girl had a gun to my head, like, cause I'm throwing up all over her house. And she's like, get like, pull it together. And she like throws me out of her house. Like a cop, a off duty cop picks me up and takes me home. Like there was things like that. I'm waking up in Vegas, not knowing how I got there. I mean, there was, there were some real things that happened. So, you know, I, I can discount my alcoholism because it's so, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't drink every day, but like every time there was a massive event, <laughs> like it was, a, it was a thing. It wasn't um, as you know sweet and innocent as I maybe I made it sound. Did but. you did you have the experience? I had this experience early on, not so much when we started to get into heavy drugs, but early on where I was like, trouble finds me, where like I really thought that I coincidentally ended up in these crazy scenarios, like just hang out with me. Trouble will find me. Like no understanding that my behavior maybe caused some of this stuff. Was that like, did you, were you, uh, these events, did you link them to the drinking at the time? No, my friends always just said you, I was the fun one. I always Mm -hmm. found the people, you know, I always, I wasn't, I don't know that I even was really honest with my friends too much about these like big occurrences that happened because I was just like, yeah, I don't think I was on, I was, there was a lot of like, alcoholism also had like a lot of shame. So I would leave details out <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would, and I would glamorize a lot of things like waking up in Vegas and we, I like woke up in Vegas and we were in this big, huge, like we, and there was like all this money, but like, I didn't tell them like how I was totally blacked out on the way. I don't remember getting there and how these guys were probably drug dealers. And like, you know, I would sort of leave that stuff out, but I, but I also did have a way of meeting the right, the quote unquote right people to get in the club and in the line and meet these people to get into this event. And like, I could kind of finagle my way into situations that were also beneficial to people I was hanging out with. So, so there was good and bad, you know. Did they have a reaction to you getting sober? Oh God. Yes. They were like, why are you doing this to us? <laughs> <laughs> My best girlfriends were, you know, a lot of people that were close to me were, were confused, to be honest. They did not understand why I was getting sober, which was really confusing to me in the beginning. Mm. And grateful I met the people I met when I first got sober, as far as like when I went to face-to-face meetings. But yeah, my, my friends were like, we don't like, don't stop drinking because they were drinking and they partied like normal people that you do when you're early 20s, what you do. And I was quite miserable to be around up until like, five years sober, I would say, in situations where we'd go out. I was just so painfully uncomfortable in my skin. So painfully uncomfortable in my skin. And I would that would turn that would come out as lashing out on people or being super insecure and uncomfortable and just awkward. So they were like, please drink. I mean they never let me be the designated driver because like you need to drink. Right. You don't need to drink. They knew like I couldn't be the one that didn't drink. So Ian tells you, you need help. This is serious. What happened for you when you went to the next meeting or the face-to-face meeting? So I actually, I uh, either, did I, I am or Facebook message a girl 
who I had met through the guy that I hurt that I had originally gotten sober because of. And she, we had gone to dinner. I remember her saying, I don't drink, I'm sober. And we were drinking wine and she wasn't drinking. So I messaged her and I was like, I know you probably hate me because I hurt your friend, but I've been going to these online meetings and they said I should go to a real meeting. And they're like, not that my online meetings weren't real, but like, I need to go to a face-to-face meeting. And, you know, I, I was wondering if you know how those go kind of things. So I didn't know if she went to AA or not. And I didn't really fully understand what AA was at that time. But she said, uh, you know, I totally understand. And yes. And so she took me to my first meeting on a Monday night. And that meeting, I walked in. I I, ooh, I was so uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> wow. I just remember like looking around and being like, because honestly, my biggest thing was I was always like, I'm not cool enough. I never thought I was cool enough. That was my total... That was always the language I had with myself. So I walked in there. It's like all the cool kids from high school. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, they're so cool. And they've got tattoos. And like, I'm just not that cool. And... And so I immediately felt so... Un- I was uncomfortable. I did not have that experience where I walked into the room and I was like, I'm home. No, I was like, this is awkward. <laughs> but that was the first time I'd ever said out loud, I'm an alcoholic. And that was the first time that I really believed I'm an alcoholic, I think, in that room. What did that feel like? Really good. Because it felt like, oh, wow, all those years of therapy of lying about my what was really going on. Because the therapist, you know, over and over would ask me about my drinking and I would never tell her what was really happening. And so they would just give me new antidepressants and not that there's anything wrong with antidepressants, but I was masking something that was, there was an actual reason I was depressed. It wasn't a chemical imbalance because I was drinking and harming myself. (laughs) Right. It's it's really hard to treat depression when you're blacking out. Yeah. Note to to self. Turns out. Yeah. Turns out. Newsflash. So... (laughs) So you went to that first meeting and tell me about what the recovery, early recovery was like in your journey from there. I don't know if I would call it white recovery. Maybe white knuckling might be the word. Um, I went to one meeting a week for six months. I did not get a sponsor. I was super confused about that because there was, I remember I was at a young people's meeting and I was like, I don't want anything any of these people have. And I didn't like, because I wasn't looking at the recovery side of it. I was looking at like what they had, what they actually had. Um, I was like, I need, yeah, exactly. I I was like, I didn't know it meant like spiritually what they have. And so just for people who don't know, they say you find a sponsor by looking for somebody that you want what they have as in their life, you know, relationships, et cetera. Yeah. And so I, I didn't find a sponsor. And then finally this girl had said, Oh, you should come to this women's meeting. And I went to the women's meeting. It was a 90 minute meeting, which was just, really tough for me. And um, at the break, I was like, I think I'm going to leave and drink. At that point, I didn't know yet that I had issues with women. <laughs> I didn't know. I was like, oh, I'm free and I love everyone and love life. I would write love life on everything. And so I, I thought, you know, I don't have a problem with women. You know, women have a problem with me. <laughs> and so I was going to leave during the break. And then I decided not to. The girl was like, you should stay. And so I stayed, I actually met my sponsor that night. And that I I remember seeing this woman. I remember her sharing. She was freaking hilarious. I remember she just, she just had a glow. She had a way about her. And I was like, that human needs to be my sponsor. I don't know what a sponsor is or what they do, but I like her. <laughs> and so I totally shocked her to her car after the meeting. And I was like, please be my sponsor. <laughs> and she was so sweet. And uh, and she said, you know, are you willing to go to any lengths to stay sober? 
had no idea what that meant. I said, yes, because I knew that's what she wanted me to say. And, and then, yeah, I went from there. So she was my first sponsor. She's still like kind of my sponsor, but I, I moved. So how long were you sober when that happened? About six months. Okay. Okay. About six yeah. months. And I did not have any emotional sobriety. So like, I didn't get why people were so happy because I didn't have any freedom. Talk okay. to us about emotional sobriety. Yeah. Okay. So, um, for example, I was like white knuckling it, which that means basically like you're just not drinking no matter what, but you're, you're struggling. That's how I interpret it. At least it's like that. Oh, I'm just not going to drink that feeling. (laughs) And my ego was such an asset because I wanted to not have to come back to that meeting. I never took a newcomer chip because I didn't go to a meeting my first 30 days. Mm. I was like, I never want to have to take that chip. (laughs) So my ego really worked for me in the beginning. And then so I was super, I was still like, you know, they say that alcohol isn't the problem, it's the solution. So now I've got this whole whirlwind of problems, which is all in my head. I've got a self-centered disease. So I'm like totally all about Brittany, Brittany's world, what I'm thinking, what I'm fearing, how I'm feeling, you know, what I need, what I want. And I am just completely self-obsessed and in pain because you took away my medicine. Mm. And again, even though I didn't drink every day, I looked forward to that, that reprieve, that, uh, that feeling of, oh, okay. I don't have to think about myself right now or think about anything, to be honest, you know, like gave me that, that break from my head, which if you're an untreated alcoholic, you know how painful that is. And, and so, yeah, so I started working with her and then she, she introduced me to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I read it and I just did what she said. She said to do steps, which are, you know, the 12 steps, which end us up in freedom. And, um, and that was the first time I'd gotten honest with someone truly fully. I told her everything stuff that I was never going to tell anyone ever in my entire life. Yeah. And the most beautiful thing, I think the reason I got so much emotional sobriety from her is because she taught me unconditional love. I would tell her things that I thought, you know, this is going to be the moment that she says like, you need to go to jail or, you know, <laughs> for feeling this way or, or even if like the stuff, the quote unquote, like bad stuff I did. She just loved me through it and was like, it's okay. You know, we're going to, we're going to work through this and you're going to let go. And, and that really gave me the freedom to start holding my head a little higher and feeling a lot better about myself. So that was for about six months. We started doing the whole, going through the steps. And then I got a job where I started traveling for work and then enters the next phase of white knuckle sobriety. And I started traveling, wasn't going to meetings. And then I picked up my new favorite addiction, which came from my childhood food. I don't know if you want me to go into that now. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, then I learned what it's like to be have recovery, to not have recovery and stay sober. So I'm white knuckling. Then I get a sponsor. I do the steps to get spiritual. You know, I'm feeling connected to a higher power of my own understanding. I am, you know, really flourishing, feeling good. I start to get the things back, the gifts of sobriety that you can get back. Not everyone gets them, but I got the promises. You know. Oh God, I started getting jobs. Like I just you know started feeling like, oh, like I got this. I don't need anything. I'm good. So started travel when I started doing that travel for work, I learned very quickly that this really is a disease that has centered in my mind and it really does have nothing to do with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is so crazy to me. Mm-hmm. You bring yeah. it with you. Yeah, I just brought every plane I got on. Guess who came with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Myself and I. Mm-hmm. And then I found out that uh, my anxiety and my depressive nature at times, woo, 
went through the roof without solution. My, my new solution was meetings and fellowship and talking to other alcoholics and having a sponsor. Getting completely disconnected left me in exactly the same amount of pain as I was before I got sober. So I knew I wasn't going to drink because I was like, my ego was still really helping me at that point. So what did I do next best thing? Food. Oh, you give me a food. I mean, you give me an expense account, get in a hotel room. Your girl can do some damage, mm-hmm. like 70 <laughs> pounds, 70 pounds in a year worth of damage. Oof. And I learned the depth of a new level of depression, a new kind of depression. Cause again, I grew up playing sports and like, I, you know, I'd always struggled with the binge eating, but I like it. I was always like still kind of a normal size, you know, like I still felt I didn't feel good in my skin and I always wanted to be smaller and I always wanted to be thinner and all that stuff. But I still wasn't, you know, eight, I was I still wasn't a size 18 and not, not that there's something wrong with a size 18, but for me, who's normally like a five to go to a size 18 is a big change. And so I put on a lot of weight and I remember coming home from being gone for like a year, basically on and off and seeing my mom and she was like, what happened? <laughs> but not in a mean way she's genuinely concerned she's like wait yeah (laughs) excuse me like what's going on here you know she could tell something very wrong what'd you say i said well can you help me and so then i went on a a massive crash diet Mm -hmm. (laughs) after many after many many a crash diet because in this period of time i recognized i was not blind i knew i was uh gaining weight and i also worked with a team who really co-signed the weight gain like they're like it's fine. You're good. You look great. And I was doing, you know, on tour, I was doing crash diets. You know, one, one week I'm doing Atkins. The next week I'm only eating bars. The next week I'm getting juices delivered to my hotel room. The next week I'm, you know, whatever. I just, I mean, the, it was, it was all over the map. You know, I, I think I did like 30 crash diets or something. And so I did one last final crash diet when I came home where you eat 500 calories a day and you take some hormones mm-hmm. and you, uh, you starve yourself for 40 days <laughs> and I did it and I lost 30 pounds and I gained all of it back, back plus 10 in two weeks after I completed it. And it was epic. <laughs> and Gosh, I hit, that hit a, sounds so familiar. Does it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's weird. So weird. So weird. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was my last uh, bottom with the food. And then I had to get, go to yet another 12 step program for food. Oh God. Here I go, moseying on back in utter defeat, going, I, but I didn't drink. Yeah. But I felt just as bad. So it's interesting. I mean, at, you and I know each other's, and you know that this is something that I struggle with. And it's come up so much in sobriety. And like, I, I too relate to that getting the emotional sobriety, like feeling good, feeling free, and particularly Southern California, Alcoholics Anonymous, just the women loving you and just the cool factor and all that. Like, I talked about that. And then, like, you hit a point, and I think for me at least, and I've seen this happen a lot, which is we're sober for some time, and then our toolbox does not evolve at the pace that our life does. Mm. And I think I think my life has evolved much faster than I've been able to emotionally therapeutically evolve. And so mm. what happens is we start to need another th- solution and we know we can't drink and you know and then you then maybe we know we can't 
you know, hook up with lots of guys and because that doesn't fill our self-esteem anymore. And we know we can't, you know, mm-hmm. add in all the other things. We can't gamble or we can't this, or we can't shop. And so you start to like, oh my God, what's left? What's mm-hmm. left? And this is the acceptable. And it comes back to that, the acceptable thing that you mm-hmm. can do. And lo and behold, for me, the place where I have come to see my disease in its purest, most, you know, just the most unadulterated form is with the food because my alcoholism is alive and well, and that scares the crap out of me. Mm -hmm. What was uh, you, so you went to OA? Love that. Yes. Okay. So uh, what 12-step program did you uh, end up in? So I ended up going to OA, which was Overeaters Anonymous. And just that name in itself was like oh, the sexy thing I'd ever heard. I was like, over here, anonymous? <laughs> what kind of shit is this? <laughs> like, can we call it like food, eat foodies anonymous? Yeah. Or like foodies. Yeah, or like yeah. problem eating anonymous. Yeah. Like, it like, is, it's the least sexy. Like I'd rather go to like some sort of, you know... I'm not even going to say on on this, but I like you just, you're like anything but overeaters. I did too many crash diets anonymous, like something, but like overeaters anonymous. Oh, I went to my first meeting and um, luckily my sponsor was also in that program. So I just went with her and I went and people again, like I'll be honest, it felt really damn good to hear people talk about food the way that I talked about food that were as weird with food as I was with food. I mean, we're talking going through drive throughs pretending I'm on the phone so I can order more food so they don't think that it's for me. Again, remind you, like, just to like, come back to it. Everything with my alcoholism is shame-based and hiding. Mm. So everything I did was about hiding and being in shame. And fake birthday cakes, going to the store, being like, yo, her name's Sarah. And, uh, you know, and then I would go to the extent of buying birthday candles and maybe some streamers, something, because... They're going to freaking know that I'm buying a cake for myself to eat in the parking lot. No, they have no idea. (laughs) But I'm like, but again, I'm like, the world's out to get me. They know. And again, like, you know, this is my like, quote unquote, hood reference. Not to like say anything about like the hood or sound weird about that. But like, but it was like, I had this mentality that like people were out to get me and like coming at me. And so I need to buy birthday streamers. So you think it's for, I would literally pretend I was going to a party of one. In the parking lot. And I'd be like, okay. And, or um, in the hotel rooms, turning on the showers and being like, babe, our food's here and ordering like a salad and a pizza and a dessert. I mean, like, yeah, your dessert looks great. Yeah. Like, you just, the room service person does not care. But my self centered disease tells me they know. Oh, they know. And it makes it, it makes all of this stuff like not enjoyable, like, right? Because it's like, there's fear of running out. It's like all the same stuff, right? It's making it look normal, like taking out the details, kind of like you talked about with the alcoholism, winding, oh, I, I, we wound up in Vegas, whatever. So you're removing the details, you're Mm -hmm. at, you know, positioning it the way you want. And then it's not pleasant. Like it's actually, like if we actually take, the temperature of how we're feeling when we're into that. It's like, it's not, that's not an enjoyable thing. It's you're in the parking lot at Safeway eating a cake. Happy birthday streamers. I really hope you did something with all the, how many times did you buy streamers? I, I actually have no idea, but I would just throw it all away. And like, and then it's like when I would throw it away in a dumpster, I would like cover it with other trash. 
like somebody it'd be a random dumpster this is like how neurotic i was about it or like in my head about it it's like i would cover other trash over it even if the trash can was nowhere near my house like no one knows that you ate this cake or that anything happened but you're in a dumpster covering it with other trash to hide it from who who are you hiding the cake from Brittany? like like who is watching no one no one's watching, but this is, and this is, you're sober. Like you're sober yeah. and Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Yeah. So like yeah. you have that behind you, which, you know, you talked about the um, untreated alcoholism and there are a few things, I won't say nothing worse, but there are a few things that are as painful as untreated alcoholism emotionally. Like it is so terrible to have the brain, the disease, the talking, the loudness in your head, the loudspeaker, and not have any solution. Like it's better to drink in some of those scenarios than to to you know. There, we our disease requires a solution. That, that bottom line, it's just which one you pick. Yeah, I know you, you said it perfectly. Exactly. What so exactly. what ha- you went to Overeaters Anonymous? You're like, oh my gosh, sex, sexy's not coming back. What uh, what happened? Not bringing sexy. So, not not bringing sexy back. <laughs> so I had had like moments or bouts of bulimia. So I had moments or bouts, very much like my alcoholism. Didn't throw up every day. Wasn't that big of an issue. But sometimes I ate too much, so I had to throw up. Like duh. It wasn't a oh I ate something so I'm gonna throw up. It was I ate too much and like I'm literally throwing up involuntarily. And there were times where it was definitely like, I'm going to drink more water so I can throw up easier. Like I was definitely planning things out as well, but it was very much a, I ate so much. I physically am like laying on my bed, trying not to throw up, throw up. And then it's like, I'll have to do a stand up. And so my bottom line, when I got um, what they call it in overeaters anonymous is abstinent, not sober. So I got abstinent. I, it was bottom line, no throwing up, no matter what. So um, my sponsor's like, hey, what I want you to do is I want you to send me your food, no matter what it looks like. And I was like, you want me to send me my what? what? <laughs> so like, I remember the first three days I was like, yeah, I had a protein shake and then I had like an apple with almond butter and then I had you know chicken and lettuce and then salmon with asparagus for like the first three days. And then it was, I had a protein shake, apple and almond butter, chicken and lettuce, five pack Skittles a Ben and Jerry's and another protein shake. And then, and it was like that. So in the beginning, my food was perfectly imperfect is what we called it. And I sent it no matter what. And that was a, and like, I don't know why that makes me emotional. It makes me super emotional because what my sponsor taught me is it didn't matter because no matter what I sent her, she always wrote back perfect food, no matter what. If I didn't throw up, perfect food, perfect doesn't matter what it was. It was about me taking the shame out of it. It was me saying, I am willing to go to any length. I'm willing to send you my food, no matter what it says. And we're just going to let it go. And eventually it turned from four packs of Skittles to three, you know, from five to four to four to three, three to two. Then it was like every two days. And then it was like every week. And then, and then I really got present to the fact that I do sugar, like I do alcohol Mm -hmm. and I don't really have a control over what happens once I have it. And what I realized is that sugar makes my life and choices much more complicated. Doesn't mean that now, I mean, I can tell you what I, what I do now, but back then I really needed that hard line of like, 
I'm not going to eat this substance because I don't trust myself when I have it. And that's okay. For me, it was a big deal to say, that's okay. I don't have to have this substance to live my life. Just like I didn't have to have alcohol to live my life. And I'll figure it out. If I could quit drinking, I could quit doing sugar. And so, so yeah, so she really taught me how to be unconditionally honest. Oh God. I mean, that was like the deepest, that was harder than any sharing any of my alcohol stuff was sharing my food. That was like very, very vulnerable for me. Mm -hmm. That was very, I mean, that was my food. That's my ride or die. (laughs) And now I'm just like sharing it, you know, telling you what I'm eating. Like it's no because it meant something about me at that point. Yeah. I guess that, that, I mean, that was just like, I mean, that really meant something and, and it didn't have to, but it did at that time. So, so take us on, on your journey from there to today. Yeah. Okay. So then, so then the food, it kind of got, you know, I would get better. I would get like, you know, better, AKA I would lose weight. Cause at that time I wasn't really seeing OA as a spiritual program. I was seeing it as a weight loss program. And so I was going to OA to lose weight. So that started happening. And then I, I stopped going cause I'd be like, Oh, well I'm losing weight and I'm fine. And, uh, and then I'd get weird with food again. And so it's kind of like this back and forth. And then I finally got in this place where I just started feeling kind of normal with food. I mean, I still don't really know what normal with food is, but for all intents and purposes, the most normal I had been, I wasn't hiding my food when I was eating. I wasn't hiding wrappers. I was like eating in front of people. My other new absence was no sneak eating. That was a big one for me. It's like, I'd be in, I remember I'd be in the, the, <laughs> in the kitchen, uh, my ex, that my boyfriend at the time, I'd be like, I'm eating a spoonful of peanut butter <laughs> be in the other room. <laughs> no sneaky and he'd be like, okay, <laughs> I'm going back for another one. <laughs> Got it. You know, but R- rigorous, honestly, yeah, I had to be that way though, because I'm so capable of being a sneaky little bugger. You know, I'm really good at that, that part, but just sneaky, sneaky. And so, especially with food, especially with food. And so, so yeah, things got weird. Uh, things got weird, better. I started uh, really getting interested in running and that became a really awesome outlet for me. So I remember I was really uncomfortable because in the beginning people were like, you're running too much. Um, I was doing marathons and I loved it, but I truly, I remember when I, my sponsor had me do some writing on it and it was like, no, I love running. It wasn't like a, I'm running to wait, run weight off. It was just like, it was my meditation. It was my new high. Mm. And again, I'm a creature of more. You want me to run a 5K? Let's do a marathon. Let's do an ultra marathon. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. And I loved the culture. I loved the community and the people. And it was so fun. And and weight just started coming off. And I felt really good. And then I got super into health and fitness. And people started asking me more questions. I was still working my full-time job. So I started getting really into nutrition and started studying it kind of on my own and, and trying to help other people with their stuff. And then, and then what happened? Oh, then I decided I want, oh yeah. So what happened when I ran a lot is I lost my whole butt. (laughs) (laughs) The whole thing, it just fell off. And, um, this is whatever. I know it's going to sound vain, but it's okay. So I was like, I really want to build a butt. And, uh, I had seen like, this is like the Instagram era at this time. It just started. So there were a couple girls on Instagram who were kind of selling, selling, uh, booty building programs and stuff. And it all included weightlifting. And I always had a very big fear of weight because I didn't want to quote unquote, like look like a man. I was very anti weightlifting. And so, but then I started lifting weights and I was like, this is it. This is awesome. And it didn't take as much time as running because I was going on these like three hour runs. Mm-hmm. It took an hour. 
and I could eat more. And like, I really love, I just loved it. And so I started lifting weights and doing like hit training and, and all that stuff. And my food at this time was, I don't think that I really understood that I was under eating. I thought I was eating a normal amount, um, but I was probably under eating a little bit, but I don't think that I knew I was under eating. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, I think I was eating like, not talking about calories, but like 12, 13, 1400 calories. But that's what we're marketed at. Like that's what, you know, every magazine color cover says the perfect 1200 calorie diet, the perfect 1500. So I didn't really know. I thought that was just normal. Right. And, um, and so, but looking back at it, I was probably under eating a little bit at that time. Fast forward again, I got really into lifting and decided to do my first bikini competition. Oh yeah. In abstinence, which is like super anti-abstinence. And, uh, or like in that, in the OA world, it was really frowned upon. So I stopped going to OA because they were like, what are you doing? And, or I thought, actually, let me retract that. They never said you can't do a bodybuilding show and be in OA. But I decided I can't do a bodybuilding show and be in OA because they're going to think I'm weird. And so I stopped going and then things got complicated. So I was getting ready for this show and following their plan. My coaches had me on a very low calorie plan, which again, I just trusted what someone said. So I did their plan, but then I was binging every other week and it was just like not a very spiritual time in my food. And then after the show ended, it was game on. So after that first bodybuilding show, I had to re-surrender because I had gained 30 pounds in like a month after the show. It was game on after that show. It was really scary. And it, it, and I honestly, like I had 30 pounds to gain because I had just done a bodybuilding show. And if you're not familiar with bodybuilding shows, you get really, really mean. Yeah. I and mean, I, you were, yeah. you, you were thin. Yeah. I was very small. And I remember friends were like, what is wrong with you? But I was also working out at a bodybuilding gym and they're like, you're perfect. Like this yeah. is exactly how you're supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but people were like concerned and I, and, it, and I knew like, I'm only going to be this lean for this amount of time, you know, but I did not need to gain the weight in the way I did, but I had no spiritual tools. So I just went, went to town and so then I got to re-surrender in the OA program. I went back and I found a sponsor about a year ago, a little over a year ago to re-surrender again. And um, so I've been working with her for about a year, but that my absence again changed, changed again. Like we don't even talk about food when I talk to her. It's so weird. I mean, it has so nothing to do with the food. Now, I mean, it's like a whole new level. I'm like working the steps and doing the work in that work and that um that program. And it's like the food rarely comes up. The only time I'm doing another bodybuilding show, actually. I know. And that's awesome. And, and it's, uh, we were talking about the other day and she's like, how does the energy feel now? And I'm like, this is a night and day, like completely different experience this time. What's different? And, uh, I don't think that, I think that the reason I actually know the reason I did the first one is because I was in Vegas for my 30th birthday and, um, my friends coerced me or forced me into this bikini competition. And I wanted to die. Like I was so uncomfortable and they put me up there and I was like, this is the worst day of my life. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and I'd always kind of thought like, I w- I'd love to do a show. And when we left there, I was like, dude, I just turned 30. When am I ever going to do this? Like if I ever want to like have kids or anything, not that you can't do a bodybuilding show after that, but I'm like, my life is not going to be about my body ever, you know, or like, oh. again, not. <laughs> not that, yeah, it's not about that, but it's like, I'm not going to ever have this, this amount of time to focus mm-hmm. on myself because it's a, it's a self sport. Um, it's very much about you. And so 
the energy behind that was I'm going to lose this weight and I'm going to get in the best shape of my life. And like that, that was the energy. And this one, I think it's just like, it's just different and more grounded. I got a coach who is sober mm. and uh, he's 17 years sober and he is just a gem. He's like just a very spiritual person. And, and we have a very, he is understanding of my eating disorder and my issues. And like, we've talked through it all. And so we're approaching it in a very spiritual way. And I've been um, brought in meditation and I'm also being very transparent on Instagram and like sharing my thoughts and what's going on and really trying to quite honestly, bring a little bit more of a spiritual side into the bodybuilding world. Because I don't think that it's mutually exclusive. I think that you can do both. And I think that you just have to... It's like, I've had to up my program, put on put my program on steroids. Don't worry, I'm not on steroids. <laughs> but um, I'm also a natural athlete, which is a big, a big thing in the industry as well. But it is... you know I have had to up my my meetings. I've had to up my my journaling, my meditation. I talk to my sponsor every single day, no matter what, like I'm keeping everything in a very spiritual row. And I have some friends that are going to keep that are keeping me super accountable. And it's just a different experience. So, you know, even with that being said, I'm like, Oh, people would probably wonder like, why would you do this? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you do it? Explain yourself. I'm like, let me, let me just ask myself the question. Why would you do this? Um, so just like the running, like I truly, I truly loved running. I truly am an athlete at heart. Like I am an athlete. I love to compete. I love to push myself to new boundaries and it's exciting. It's exciting to like become a different version of yourself because this takes a mental side of myself that I've never known. Like it takes a different, I don't mean physically. I mean, mentally, I have to literally become a different person in order to pursue this goal. And that's exciting to me. That growth and what it's taking me and the way it's pushing me spiritually is is actually way cooler than I anticipated. That's awesome. So you've maintained 65, 70 pound weight loss. Yeah. And um, and I know that you were on some you were on some TV shows and and that you have this incredible following on on Instagram and you have um, you know, you're a personal trainer and a coach and you've created this community for yourself in, you know, at the Mecca of bodybuilding in Venice Beach. And it's such a cool life. And it's so interesting that it required this like fate, these phases of surrender because it's it's so, it feels to me such like such authentic sobriety. Yeah. Thank you. Just like the continuation of surrender, (laughs) just the bringing you to your knees every few years. Yeah. (laughs) But in the best way possible, because it's like, you know, every time, I think the the biggest thing that sobriety has given me is the ability to understand and to truly believe that everything is temporary, the good and bad. It's all temporary. And it's not all happening at you or to you. It's happening for you. And I really do believe that. And there's no way that I would be where I am now if I hadn't gone through every single thing I'd gone through, whether it was self-propelled or, you know, just the universe at work. Like I wouldn't have what I have today, which I am so grateful for if it wasn't for all of these surrendering opportunities before. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Opportunities. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do know. And I, um, not only do I know, but I, I've gotten to watch a lot of yours and it's been it's been really cool and to see that change and to watch, you know, you lay the groundwork and and achieve your dreams and goals. And I think it's a different type of sobriety when you, you know, keep 
I think some people, they get sober and they kind of stick with the same stuff for a long time. And if the disease is really loud for you, then it's there and you have to keep evolving at a, at a much faster pace. And, and I know you and I definitely relate on that. So Brittany, your life today, you know, we, you talked a little bit about your bodybuilding. What else do you have going on? I started a company, um, Lean Lifestyle Method. I started a program, I should say. My company is just me, basically. But um, I started a, pro- a coaching program called Lean Lifestyle Method. And it is a three-month transformational program for women who I wouldn't say are have an eating disorder, but might be a little bit weird with food. So this isn't the girl who is really struggling as anorexic or bulimic. This is a girl who does not know how to take time for herself. Maybe she's you know, busy executive and takes care of everyone else, but doesn't ever take an hour for herself to like pause and eat lunch type of person. Um, usually in over eating. Yeah. Disordered. I, I call it weird with food. Okay. Okay. Disordered, disordered feels a little serious. Okay. Okay. Like it's, not, like it's not, you know what I mean? Like yeah. disordered. disordered. Um, but maybe they're, they're like a little weird with food, you know, they, okay. they might catch themselves. They, they're the type of person who just needs to be like, um, reminded to pause. Okay type of thing. And so I have that program and that has turned into, uh, it makes me like, makes me want to cry. It just turned into the most incredible group of women I've ever met. (laughs) It is, it's magical. Like, um, there's all these movements, you know, we talk about like women support women and, you know, you got to empower each other. And we talk about that stuff and it's like very nice to hear and a nice thing to have on a shirt. And what I found is not that many people are practicing that. And what I found in these groups of women is it's like, holy guaca freaking moly, these women are doing the deal. They are learning how to show up for each other in the most powerful way. And witnessing people who say they're like in their application, like I'm not really a girl's girl, witnessing that being the person who becomes the biggest cheerleader and teaching them how to be vulnerable and open. Because like, again, it's about the food, but it's not about the food. Right. And so we, we talk about food in the group and like in the beginning, it's the logistics and when to eat and how much to eat and how to do it and how to navigate different situations with family and, and restaurants and blah, 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 blah. But like, it ends up not being about that. We talk about everything else in their life and that becomes the most magical thing. And it just, I don't even know how to explain what happens. It's just, it's just incredible. So I just get to watch people's lives transform and it feels like a mini like mini sobriety, but it's like, <laughs> it's weird. It's just, yeah. That's really cool. Well, you've done an amazing thing with your life and I know that you'll continue to do that. When is your show? Thank you. June 29th in Tempe, Arizona. Ooh, that'll be hot. It will be hot, but at least it'll be dry because I have very large hair <laughs> and... <laughs> Yep, I relate to that too. And it will really help with my hair. <laughs> this is what I'm telling myself. It's going to be so hot. It's going to be awesome. You're going to do great. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for coming on and and um, and talking about that. Do you want to give any details about your program if people are interested where they can where they can find information about Lifestyle Lean Method or information about your coaching in LA? Yeah, of course. So we have the next program starting in April. I'm actually going to announce the date tomorrow. <laughs> Wait, are we, I guess this is going to be later. So I can this is going to be, yeah. So the one after April, what's the one? Do you know? Uh, the one after April, I don't know yet. Okay. 
But you can follow me on Instagram, which is at Brittany Carbone, B-R-I-T-T-N-E-Y, Carbone, C-A-R-B-O-N-E. And um, I post on, on there all the time about, you know, when the next program's coming up, what kind of um, coaching opportunities I have. And that's basically the main place that you can find me or just www.brittanycarbone.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Britt. Um, it's yeah. been amazing hearing your story all over again. And I know that you will touch lots of lives. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. You're, you're an incredible human being and such a badass woman. So thank you. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you.